Exodus chapter 8, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to study together, to open your word. <coughs> we thank you for the blessing to, to know you, God. You, you've made us aware of you. And Lord, not just in a general sense that we know there's a higher power or a God out there. You've made us known through your Son. You've brought us into a sweet and personal relationship with you. And so when we study the word, we know, we come to know this one whom we love, who first loved us. <clears throat> and we long desire tonight to know you better. So we pray you would strengthen us to learn, open our minds, and particularly our hearts to the truth, Lord. Help us to be hardened to sin and softened to your truth. Sometimes we reverse that, Lord. And I pray you would Cause us to have soft hearts towards your truth, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, really what we're seeing is a, a heavyweight boxing match that's really one-sided. Round one went to God. Wasn't much of a fight. Wasn't much of a round. God certainly knocked uh, Egypt out with a, a good swift roundhouse of turning their Nile, their great god of life into blood, killing all the fish in it, uh, destroying so many things that they held so dearly, and did that just in a swoop of the move of the staff of God. But I think as I studied this this week, I, and, I, and I've probably said this before, but what helps my heart so much is to study on the greatness of God. When I study in the greatness of God, it brings joy to me. Um, it helps me defeat sin in my life. Uh, it, it gives me, um, I don't know if you'll just come across, but a sense of worth. You, you, you value life, and you value your Christianity, and you value your church, and you value their brothers and sisters in the faith when you study God. He, he becomes alive when, you're, when your heart's right with him. You look at the scriptures, and you go, that's my God. Right? I mean, we all get pretty zealous about teams, don't we? I, mean, I get afraid to name teams in this group. I get wars going on here, depending on which school you went to and what colors you fly. There is nobody more we root for than God, right? We read this stuff and we go, that was a great battle. And God won. And, and, it, and it, it, this is what we should do when we come to the scriptures. It should encourage us. I, I pray that you come away from these nights when we study, particularly more in a teaching mode on these Wednesday nights, and you come away and you go, God, I am so glad to know you. Thank you for revealing yourself to me. Just be smart enough to say, I'm glad you're not against me. <laughs> this God hasn't changed, has he? Do we believe in the characteristics of God, right? One is, certainly one is immutability. God does not change. Is he any different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament? He does not change like the shifting shadows. So, this is the God who will oppose those who reject him. That's scary. That is awful scary, isn't it? But, now let's flip the coin. He's our God. He fights our battles. He secured our eternity. See, this strengthens you, doesn't it? Does it encourage you? That, oh Lord, okay, I want to walk with you. I want to denounce sin. I want to, I, want to, I want to be in the fight. Help me, Lord. And so I hope that you're encouraged as we go 
on this. Um, I, I, I helped, just a sermon, a, a God like none other. A God like none other. Gina and I talk about this all the time. She goes, well, there's no real other gods, are there? I know, but that's what he says. <laughs> he says, there's no God like me. Because they're all false and demigods and all this stuff that's out there that man makes up and man falls down and worships. But there is no God like him. And he's our God. So I hope that encourages and spurs you on. Uh, the first song we sang, it said, your power is unequaled. Boy, we're going to see that again tonight. We're just going to look at the second, third, and fourth plague. And, and they're intensifying as they're going. And I hope you're encouraged to realize this is our God. Let's look at a couple thoughts tonight. Three of them to be exact. A God like none other and his frogs. A God like none other and his frogs. Because these are his frogs. I want to prove that to you tonight as we go along. So here we come to the second plague. And it begins in the usual way with, with the Lord directing Moses what to do, right? This is Moses is his servant. Moses is his prophet. He's his mouthpiece. Aaron is in some ways too. Um, but Moses is God's man, right? And so God says, this is what we're going to do. So what does Moses do? Okay, God. You can do this, I can't, let's go do this. So notice verse one, what happens. And the Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. I love that phrase. It's why all of us who preach and teach for a living or handle a BFG or a Bible study or a women's Bible study or whatever, hey, when you say this, thus says the Lord, this is an important thing. Let my people go that they may serve me. So here, right off the bat, we see this statement, thus says the Lord, and and it's a phrase used by faithful messengers. Now think about this. Faithful messengers entrusted to deliver God's message. It isn't thus says Scott or anybody else. Thus says the Lord. And so you go and say what the Lord says. And again, this is what we see Moses do. Look at verse 2 with me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite. These are strong words here. Your whole territory with frogs. <clears throat> now here, in verse 2, there's this very explicit warning, right? I'm going to smite it. He's given Pharaoh um, a warning here. And if you reject my word, I'm going to smite it. It's a strong word. Uh, the Hebrew word um, conveys, a, and we looked at this, I think, a week or two ago. It, it conveys a mighty blow, like being hit hard. That's what this word has. And, and of course, it's pointing to the plagues, and the plagues are pointing to divine judgment. I'm going to bring divine judgment against you. Reject my word, you will be judged. Now, as you look at this, and you look about Pharaoh here, and we know what he's going to do, right? We know his heart's going to harden. He's going to reject God. But, but maybe on his human thinking, maybe Pharaoh didn't take the warning of frogs seriously, Right? Oh, frogs, scary. <laughs> Little hoppies, right? Croakers, they called them back then. I, I don't know, maybe he looked at it. Ha, huh? you know, frogs. Okay, whoa. <laughs> that was bad, but you're going to do frogs? I don't think he has any clue what's coming. Now, think about these frogs. They were commonly found in Egypt. They're in the marshlands um, throughout uh, the Nile region. Uh, there's a very common frog over there. They still, I think, refer to them as croakers. It comes out of that kind of Hebrew term. And it was common that after the flooding that their numbers would increase and, and, um, and, and they would be more frogs after a flood comes that would happen. They would come out of the soil and so forth. Uh, but this is, this is not that. 
This is exhausting numbers that are going to come. And then, and then there's a little, another point to understand that these frogs. To the Egyptians, they viewed frogs as a symbol of a blessing and fruitfulness. So when you saw a frog, that, that was good, right? So maybe Pharaoh was truly unfazed by a threat of something they saw as a blessing. Now, here's what God's doing. Egypt had a goddess named Hekek, Hekek, I believe it's pronounced that way. Samir's always here to come up and show me and tell me how to pronounce this thing, so I appreciate that. But anyway, so this goddess named Hekek, she was one of eight um, primitive deities that were, were fairly large in their, in their worship community. She was a woman, um, and she had an idol, she was an idol of a woman, but she had a frog's head on it. So you can see where the God's going here, right? They believe that she assisted her, her husband, Kunam, who was the creator god that was um, responsible for bringing mankind into existence. Okay, so now we understand what God's doing. Oh, we're going to take on your god who, who robs me of bringing mankind into existence. So this led to the Egyptians... Um, to see frogs as sacred. This was, a, this was a thing of worship. Frogs were worshipful. And so here when an Egyptian was walking down you know, the path and there was a frog, they saw it as a sign of life and growth and, and they, were, they were instructed and there was laws that were not to kill frogs. Well, you got a problem. Because remember, these plagues are intensifying each one of them. So blood and dead fish that was bad, but what, but what coming is, is worse. Now, look at the warning, which is actually a description of what's going to happen. The warning and the description are the same in the narrative. Look at verse 3. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and onto your beds and into your houses and of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all of your servants. Now, so this is a description, uh, not only just a warning, but it's a description of what's actually going to happen. Now notice it's the word swarm. It, it carries the idea of uncountable. Uh, it's, it's often used, the same Hebrew word is often used of counting the Israelites. Remember the Bible would say, there'll be, your, your seed will be like the sands of the sea and the dust of the ground and the stars of the skies, right? So it's an uncountable type of term there used for swarm. Uh, and this is bad when you start thinking about frogs. So the verse is, is describing an overwhelming situation. It, Pharaoh doesn't see it. Frogs, wow, you know. No, no, he doesn't understand what's coming. Now, notice he's, this term kneading bowl. There's a lot here we can talk about beds and all that stuff. I, you know, oh my goodness, uh, frogs in the bed, my wife would freak out. Um, uh, but let's go to the kneading bowl because we want to think about that for a, money, uh, a minute because why did the Lord put this in the scriptures? Now, certainly, Egyptians had small kneading bowls individually where they would knead bread. Remember, ancient world was run on bread. You did have some meat and stuff, but bread was the, what you lived on, right? And, and most of the world still does in a lot of ways. But, but here the idea of this kneading bowl is more of an idea of a kneading trough. I think what the Bible's trying to talk about is how Egypt fed the nation, this powerful nation. Massive bread-making companies, a nation producing bread to feed millions and millions of people. Let's go, well, how did they did do that? Well, they didn't have you know, commercial Hobarts like 
you know, Gabriel has. You know, you ever seen his mixers in there? They're like, wow. You know, they didn't have that. So basically what they had was they took troughs that were kind of made of wood or trees and they would hollow them out and build wooden trough type things. They pour all the ingredients in, in there and then barefooted women would get in there and they would mix the dough with their feet. Now that becomes a problem when frogs are everywhere and you have millions and millions of people that need bread. So guess what's happening as the Bible describes here? They're in your ovens and they're in your kneading bowls. So you can kind of start to see what's happening. So what the Bible, I think, is doing, it's describing that everyday normal activities are going to be greatly affected by this plague. I think most of us probably eat three square meals. Some of us probably should cut back on that. But we probably eat three squares, right? So eating and fixing meals is a very common part of life. And what the Bible's saying is, I'm going after your common daily routine to show you who's God. It's fascinating, isn't it? So you got these women, they're, they're trying to make the nation's bread, and frogs are hopping in their dough. These frogs are in the dough, they're in the oven, and the text says the, the, the bread was there. I mean, they were in the oven with the bread. So you have maybe bread coming out, I don't know, frog legs sticking out of it. Uh, toasted frog bread was maybe on everybody's menu. You can't get away from it. The scene is so incredible how many frogs these are. It's way beyond what I can get our mind around. Every once in a while in Florida has a little outbreak of frogs I've heard. I remember the first year or two we were here, there was something on the news and they were like crawling across the ground. Um, this, is, this is nothing compared to what you, I think our minds can get around what God's doing here. So, but verse four is very important. I want you to catch this. Notice the personal pronouns in four because God now turns his attention towards Pharaoh. The whole nation's falling under the judgment of God, but God's after Pharaoh. Notice this. So the frogs will come upon you. Remember, Moses is talking to Pharaoh. Come upon you and your people and all of your servants. So here's what I think he's saying. This is in reference to Pharaoh because he's the one that is opposing God. He's the one hardening his heart against God. He's the one enslaving God's people. And he says, Pharaoh, this is coming after you. Yeah, all your people are going to suffer as well, but I'm coming after you with this. And so the narrative seems to be very graphic here. And, and, and yet Pharaoh just, his response is silent. In fact, the scriptures and the narrative don't record anything. And I think this reminds us how defiant his heart is. And it reminds us how hard hearts can be. I hope, I hope your heart isn't this hard where you hear God's word preached and it does not have effect on you. That's a dangerous place to be. I mean, we go through flatlining times, don't we, every once in a while where our faith is not where it is. We, we've maybe stepped out of some kind of discipleship where we're not actively growing and, and observing and knowing the things of God better and, and we'll flatline from time to time, right? And maybe more than we would ever want to admit. Don't let your heart harden, brothers and sisters. Because bad things happen when that goes on. And certainly this is a man outside of the providence of God and a relationship with him, but it's a reminder of these things. Look at five and six with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and and the frogs came up, now look at this phrase, and covered the land of Egypt. Now, 
this staff of God <laughs> is mentioned because it's a reminder that Moses and Aaron are not doing this. They're acting on behalf of God. The staff represents the power of God, right? And we're not told how long it took for these frogs to cover the land, but it seems like it happens in, in short time. So, so there's just no way this can happen um, just naturally. So this is a miracle. God's creating something. He's creating, instantaneously creating, and they're just, they're just coming. And, and the land is literally hopping. <laughs> Have you ever seen the land move like that? One time we were on vacation, I think, right, the year after seminary, we are cutting across the country, and took, I was about dead, and so we decided to go do a long vacation together, and we stopped in northwestern Colorado to go see a canyon that's called the Mini Grand Canyon. It's a very hidden place. Not many people have been there. We're driving up this long, long road, nobody on it, and all of a sudden, I'm looking up ahead, and the, and the road is moving. And I'm going, whoa. I know I'm tired and a little worn out, but something's wrong there. And we get up, and it's millions and millions of what they call Mormon crickets in that area. And every so many decades, they have this explosion of them. And whatever cars were before us, the ground is just now only paved with flat crickets. And then there's millions going across the road. And you couldn't get out because, I mean, Gina's going, don't stop, don't, you know, she's great, you know. These things are about that big, and they're just crawling, and the whole ground is moving. And I thought, that's a little bit of, look what this must have been like. Croakers moving across the ground. Look at verse 7 with me. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Well, not discounting Satan's help, and certainly I would not count this demonic activity of God working with a very godless, pagan, anti-living God religion. But again, these guys also had some time to produce frogs, or, and they had plenty to go get to produce this. So whatever was happening here, um, they come up and they produce it. But I, I don't, again, I don't think this is what Pharaoh wanted, was more frogs. We, we, that's our problem. And these guys keep producing more. But in chapter 7, verse 22, the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So, so the magician's effort just helped reinforce the stubbornness of his heart, right? It wasn't helpful for, for him to see who God was. Now, at this point, remember, Israel is affected by this plague as well. They get hit by these first couple of plagues. Now, I, I, I thought... As I was writing this, I thought, I wonder what they were thinking. Is this a good thing? Like, okay, go get them, God. We'll tuck all the frogs on for a while. Oh, you know, maybe work, work had to stop, right? I think work stoppage probably went on when all the water turned to blood and fish died. I mean, you're just not doing a lot when ma- massive uh, catastrophic events happen like this. So, but they're getting hit by this, so don't, don't forget that. And, and it reminds us that though they don't go through all of the plagues, Christians still suffer when God brings judgment at times on the world. We could see that if the Lord comes and puts judgment even on our nation for its wickedness, we could suffer from some of those things. And yet we'll see as this message goes on that he, know, he loves his people and he protects them. Look at verse eight with me. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, entreat the Lord that he would remove the frogs from me and from my people and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Well, now, and now Pharaoh has 
taken the initiative to call for a meeting with Moses and Aaron. He, they've always had to go find him. They always had to approach him. This is the first time. Now Pharaoh says, hey, we need to have a meeting. And it, and it seems maybe he's come to his wit's end. You would think that humanly. And, and he cannot figure out anything else to stop this slimy, hopping problem that he has throughout his nation. And, and notice what he says, entreat the Lord. Entreat the Lord for me there in the middle of eight as he calls for them to come in. Uh, the Hebrew word is athar there, and it, it means um, supplicate on my behalf. In fact, it's, it's a word with strong pleading. Uh, we, fa- we find it used in, I think, Genesis 25, somewhere around there, where Isaac is pleading God because of the barrenness of her, his wife. Same word. Will you go plead? Plead with your God that he would stop this. So what's really interesting about this kind of paradigm shift is this is the same guy, God, the same Pharaoh that said in five, chapter 5, verse 2, I don't know your God. He knows him now. And he's actually asking for him, for Moses to go plead with him. And that's, a, that's an amazing paradigm shift that's happening here, although his heart will remain hard. So he's not only acknowledging the existence of Yahweh, but he's asking for prayers. Furthermore, he's admitting that Moses' God is the cause of the problem. He's come a long ways, hasn't he? He's not going to get there, but he's come a long ways. And he, and he knows that God has the power to remove this. So there's a lot of people who will play with God this way, right? Okay, I know there's a God now. Out there, A lot of things are happening. This only can be from God. So maybe I can, maybe I can get him to do something I want. So he's in full acknowledgement that there's a God, and he has the power to remove it. He also, think of this, that he, he sees that it's appropriate for Israel to sacrifice to their God. He even says, okay, you can, go, you can, you can not go, you can sacrifice to your God. So he's acknowledging he exists, he's acknowledging that he has the power to remove it, and he's acknowledging that he should be sacrificed to by his own people. He's come from chapter 5 to that there is no living God out there like this to this point. Now look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honors is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? Hmm, interesting. So Moses, he responds to this new attitude of Pharaoh that with some confidence, right? Moses, he, his confidence is not in Pharaoh, of course. His confidence is God, God has the power. God can do all this. Um, and so he lets, he, he takes the initiative and he says, well, let's let you decide when this is going to happen. And so Pharaoh's choice of time, and I want you to think about this, think, think through this. Pharaoh's choice of time only displays more that Pharaoh has to believe that God can stop this. He could have said, well, uh, we'll do it tomorrow, or we'll do it right now. He goes, hey, you pick the time. It made him acknowledge that this God can Pick a time and stop this plague. That's, I, I, I crack up at that. It's such wise um, uh, counsel. It's, it's wise apologetics, isn't it? As he, as he engages this most powerful man in the world. You pick the time, right? And so he has him pick it. Now, the time is picked so the frogs will go back to the Nile. So that shows that the first plague is no longer um, a, a precedent. It's not, have, it's not a problem right now. 
So the Nile has returned, it has cleared up and so forth. But notice verse 10, what Pharaoh does. This is fascinating. Then he said, tomorrow. So he said, may it be according to your word. He's speaking to Pharaoh now. That you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. That's where I got my title of the sermon, right? So tomorrow. Well, that's a little bit puzzling. If I got frogs in my bed with me, and I'm eating a frog subway, I want them gone now. So why does he do that? Why does he put this off? Well, maybe the delay was Pharaoh hoping that his magicians or somehow they could stop this, or he could show it was maybe some natural thing that happened or, or, and not equate it to God. Maybe that's what he was trying to buy some time. Or, or Pharaoh's just trying to show that he has some kind of trouble. Well, at the time. Well, whatever the reason, think about this. He just caused his people 24 more hours of yuck. I don't think you and I get our minds around this. Flip over in bed and you got frogs on you. Can you imagine him talking to Pharaoh and there's a frog on his head? And, I mean, <laughs> these things are everywhere. There's millions and billions of them. Now, here's the key point. This is the key point that he says. Notice in verse 10. That you, he's speaking right to Pharaoh, you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. That's the reason for all this. Certainly, combined with the release of the nation to bring them out of slavery, a teaching of atonement of God through Jesus Christ someday, that's, that's certainly combined with that. But the goal is to Pharaoh, that Pharaoh and his people will know there is no God like Yahweh. That's what he's doing. And he wants us to be seen. Notice chapter 7, just 5. Just look across the page here. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is before he does anything. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring the sons of Israel out of their midst. He, the goal is to know that they know. This statement here that, that you may know that there is none like me is a statement that continues to be taught Throughout the Bible, um, I picked out of several areas that it's used. One, it's used in Hannah's prayer. Remember Hannah? She can't have a child. She's weeping, and Eli sees her and so forth, and her husband Elkhorn is, is going to sacrifice. It's more of a party at that time, and, and she's weeping because she's barren. And, and in her prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2, very early on in verse 2, she says, There is no one holy like the Lord, Yahweh. Indeed, there was no one beside you. This is how she starts her prayer. Before she ever talks about her barrenness, she starts her prayer acknowledging there's no one like you. There's no one beside you. No one can stand with you. What a great statement of this godly woman. Nor is there any rock like God. Later, the psalmist, speaking of the steadfast love of God, Psalms 86, 8 says this, There was no one like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. So this phrase gets repeated. Probably one of my favorites comes out of the book of Isaiah in God speaking through the prophet Isaiah when, as he's responding to the idols of Babylon that the nation has fallen into adultery with, right? He, he speaks this, Isaiah chapter 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me. See, this is a phrase that we're going to hear from out throughout the Bible here. Declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient days, things that have not been seen, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. And my good pleasure right now is to show you that your frog god's dead. 
That's what he does. This is why we, we worship him, because he has his. There's no one like him. And this is why what we believe, we stand alone in the world of all the religions and all the belief systems that are out there. There's none like this. This is why we study our God. I wrote this in my notes. I study my God. So I'm writing this to me in my notes. I study my God because knowing him greatly affects my responses to him. I've got to respond to him. I've got to acknowledge sin in my life and how I, how I serve him and, and how I follow him. Do I follow him out of delight or do I follow him out of duty? See, when I know him and I, and I, and I understand him and dig in and observe him and, and, and wrestle with him at times, it, it has to transform my behavior. It has to transform my mind and my heart. This is what God is after. Look at verses 11 and 14. I've got to keep moving. We've got to get through these frogs. The frogs will depart from you and your house and your servants and your people. They will, they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which had, afflicted upon, which had been afflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the house, the courts, and the fields. So they piled in heaps, and the land became foul. Now, notice the word I will here. They, uh, or will depart here. So uh, God, they're, they they're going to watch God, they're going to observe God move these frogs or kill these frogs off is basically what's going to happen. And yet Pharaoh's heart's still far from God. So this will happen. There's a great statement there. This, they will depart. And notice in verse 12, Moses cries out. It's an intense, that's a, it's a strong word. He cries out. On the behalf of Pharaoh, Pharaoh's request, right? And so, verse 13, the Lord did according to the word of Moses. So Moses intercedes for Pharaoh. He cries out for him on his behalf. The Lord hears that. It's a remarkable response. It has to be of God because this man is a godless pagan man who wants to keep God's people under slavery. And yet, Moses cries out for him. And I think, I think what this does, I thought, I thought a lot about this. I think it just marks to us the closeness of the relationship that Moses has with God. He's come a long ways, hasn't he? First 40 years thinking he's something. The second 40 years finding out he's nothing, right? And the last 40 now he's realizing God uses nobodies. And he's, he's actually become very close to God. And so he's able to cry out to him. And I, and I think, brothers and sisters, a good lesson here. Cry out to God. James 4 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That, that, that speaks of our faith and our life and our, our prayer life, our interaction with the word of God. Draw near to him. Your, your relationship with God is cold because you're not drawing near to him. Something else is capturing you, something of this world, something that's gonna die and fade away and stink, <laughs> really, in all realities, now has you and you grow cold. And that's the dangers that we have when we flirt with the world. But notice God permits Moses to administer um, his will because Moses' heart's in tune with God. He's walking with God. And I think when we walk with God, we can cry out to him. And, and we can draw near to him. And, and he'll give us grace in a time of need, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. Now, 13 and 14, into four, 13 and 14, we see that the frogs did not mysteriously disappear as Pharaoh probably hoped they would. They kind of mysteriously appeared 
Maybe he was thinking, well, they'll just vanish. Well, uh, no, there's consequences to, to judgment, isn't there? And, and think about this. Now the Egyptians are doing the backbreaking work. The Israelites are probably having holiday. They're probably cleaning their frogs up as well, but they're not out building bricks. <laughs> I don't think we get our mind around what this looks like. You don't have, you know, a front-end loader with a couple-yard dumpster on the front of that, and you're raking them up. This is all handwork. Millions, if not billions, of dead, stinking, foul frogs, and you got to shovel them, and you got to get rid of them. This is a nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare what they're going through, and so. Now the Egyptians are doing the work of these decaying, and the Bible uses word heaps. Um, the largest word we have in the Hebrew of a container of a size is omer. So the Bible in the Hebrew says omer, uh, omer of omer. It's it's a weird phrase meaning this is the this is the largest heaps you can think of. That's what the Bible. It's a just the, the narrative of the way it says it. it. So whatever you can think of the largest heaps of frogs, this is what it was. Can you imagine mountains of dead frogs? And how bad that smelled? I don't know if anybody saw Gina's um, Instagram a couple of months ago. Somehow we got a frog shut in our door. And you have to look at this. It's hilarious. We found it after it was freeze-dried now. And uh, so <laughs> Gina finally pulled out of the door, and it's just, it's a frog flattened in there, you know. And one frog, and she's going crazy. Um, you know, just... Can you imagine how many frogs this was? Well, verse 15, as we close out this, this part of this, we see Pharaoh, but when Pharaoh saw that the, the relief was gone, he was relieved of this, he hardened his heart and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord said. And so here we see what God said would happen. He, he would harden his heart. It's interesting the word that he uses here for relief means he has breathing space now. He can breathe. Oh, okay, good. This trial. Oh, it's a funny word to use when you think about this whole nation is stinking with frogs. I, I, just a funny phrase, right? I have breathing space now, right? But this is what happens when your mind and your heart are hardened. You don't see what God is doing. And, and again, I think God is just showing sheer grace here. Um, and to him, and this is what happens to people, that some, they sin and they stay in sin and then, it, then they don't get hit by the bolt of lightning and so they go, well, maybe I got away with that. I, I used to do that when I was young. I knew what was right and wrong. I was raised in the church. I was a Christian. And, and yet, Pharaoh has no idea that God is mounting more and more plagues. This holy God is watching. Number two, the finger of God is like none other. The finger of God is like none other. So the third plague is, is somewhat like the first two in that um, it may not be terribly life-threatening, though I believe probably people died uh, during this time, but it's extremely irritating and exasperating, this plague. Um, but remember, all the plagues are intensifying, so the frogs was bad, but this is worse. Now, two differences that you see in this text as we get into this one. Um, Verse 16 through 19. This one is unannounced. There's no announcement. It just happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats throughout all of the land of Egypt. 
And they did so. And Aaron stretched out the land, verse 17, uh, stretched out his hand with a staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there was gnats on man and beast and all the dust of the earth because gnats uh, uh, became, became gnats throughout all of the land of Egypt. And the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh hardened his heart heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. So some of the differences is this just unannounced. God just says all right and you're not going to do this. I I believe it's unannounced because Pharaoh reneges on his commitment to let the people sacrifice in verse 8. And the magicians they can't reproduce the plague because I, I think they know they've met their match at some level. Right? So And their comment here in verse 19, this is the finger of God, you can see them like, hey, we're way in over our heads here, Pharaoh. And so you see them kind of back off. Now, gnats, I think, is probably the best description. There's a lot of people that write on this. Some believe there were fleas or mosquitoes um, or sand fleas of some sort. But think about a gnat like we know, and the gnat that's over there in that region even today, it's a nasty little guy, kind of like ours, um, you can barely see them. Most of the time you don't. Their bite is painful, leaves a skin irritation, and they're so small they can get your eyes, ears, nose, mouth. You'll swallow them at times. They lay eggs in stagnant water, which might have been around if the Nile had flooded, and they re- reproduce terribly quickly. Now, but this is not some kind of natural occurrence, again, either, that some people make it out to. God creates these gnats right out of the dust of the earth. Right out of the dust of the earth. And they seem to be so numerous, they're uncountable here. In in both the third and the fourth plague, they involve insects. And there's a reason why, again, right? Okay, so what are they worshiping now is the next question. It's likely this is directed towards the attack of this scarab god that they had, right? Uh, Capri, I think, is the name of the Egyptian god. He was called the god of resurrection. Think about this. Resurrection, people come out of the dirt and they rise. So this was the God of that. And, and he was symbolized by this flying beetle, right? A scarab. And we, we associate that with uh, the Egyptian religion a lot. So the gnats, they come right out of the ground like a resurrection. This is what God does, right? And it challenges all of this. Even their fertility that they worship to the ground. God is challenging this. And so in verse 17 and 18, he, he did this. He stretches out his staff again and, and he strikes the dust. And, and all of this dust becomes these gnats. <laughs> now, I think if I was an Egyptian and I saw Moses with that staff, I'd be going, oh no, somebody's got to get that staff. Because <laughs> every time he stretches it out, we are in a lot of trouble. Um, but maybe they didn't think that way, I don't know. So Aaron strikes this ground and, and they become, uh, this dust of the ground becomes gnats. So the loose particles, not just all the soil deep, but loose, I mean, um, a real good friend of mine was at Cal Poly and he, and he was doing his agriculture stuff there and he said one, one day I came into one of this professor's office and there was a coffee can there and there was weeds growing out of it and he said well what is that? He goes oh that's a great study We've, this, we're on our 20th year we took one can of coffee ground co- I mean a coffee can full of dirt out here in our fields out there and we've been watering and fertilizing it every year for 20 years and, we, and every year the weeds grow in it 
He says, there, you can't even see the seeds that are in this, but for 20 years we've been growing weeds, and we're going on our 20th year, and we're still full of weeds, and we, we'll pull all those, and we'll, we'll stir the ground up, water it, fertilize it, and next year it'll grow weeds again. That's just one coffee can of little seeds. So now think about the dust of the ground. Aaron strikes this dust, and everything becomes gnats. And the terminology is, is strong here, right? He, it's, it's pervasive, and so the magicians, they're outmatched. Even if, even if they have demonic power behind them, they can't seem to produce this. And so it's beyond what they can do. And, and there's a point here where they believe there's divine intervention happening. This is, this is beyond us. And, and maybe God says that's enough of your deceptive demonic behavior and stops that. Notice the Bible also says in verse 18, so the gnats were on every man and beast. Right in there, I, mean, I was getting itchy studying this. You know, I mean, this, these little guys get into everything. And, and, and here's what I wrote in my notes. I think Egypt was getting eaten alive by the tiniest creatures. Just all over everything. So verse 19, these magicians say to Pharaoh, they said, look, this is the finger of God. This is way beyond what, what we understand and what we do. This is the finger of God. What a statement. I'm not sure that came on their own uh, initiative. This is the finger of God. This phrase is, speaks of the divine power of God. Um, this is the finger of God in Exodus 31 that writes on the tablets and are given to Moses. This is what David says in Psalms 8.3, when I saw your, uh, when, I, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, the work of your finger. This is a powerful term. Um, Jesus, when he's defending himself against the Pharisees, when they're claiming him that he is Beelzebub, that he's in league with Satan, Jesus himself says, but if I cast out demons by the finger of God. So he, he relates his work to cast demons out by the finger of God, denoting the power of God that he shares with God. So I don't believe the magicians of Egypt were, were bowing to God in some kind of faith way, but I think they recognized they were beat by a superior being. This is way beyond us. And yet Pharaoh hardens his heart. In verse 19 at the end, um, it's just like God, isn't it? Verse 19, he says, but he won't listen to you. He won't listen to you. See, God, God knows the heart. He, he promises this is what's gonna happen. He says he's not gonna listen to you. He knows the heart of all people. And so this man hardens his heart. This one comparison before I go on my, quick to my last point here. When we study the book of Mark, we see the very same things, don't we? You have these Pharisees and these religious rulers. They're walking with Jesus. He's touching the tongue of mute people. He's making blind see. He's raising little girls from the dead. He, he's feeding masses of people with a few loaves of bread. And what do they do? What is their response? Pharaoh and the Pharisees, those two have a hot spot in hell, don't they? They were witnesses of the divine work of God. They were witnesses of the finger of God working. And they reject him. What a parallel. I, 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 you know, I think I've known that before, but studying this, I go, wow, Pharaoh and Pharisees. Both of them reject God. Third point, a God like no other who separates his people from judgment. Verses 20 through the end of the chapter here. We'll move quickly here. 
Um, I think what's amazing here is that even though Pharaoh goes back on his word, the Lord graciously sends him back, right? He, so he, here, verse 20, he, he says, now the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, present yourself before Pharaoh, and as he comes out to the water, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. So this is God, he's just a gracious God, and yet he's got a plan, too. And only God can soften hard hearts, and so that's why we run to, run to him when our hearts are soft, are hard. So the plague here. Um, introduces God's plan now to separate his people from the Egyptians, right? This is where he is gonna have a dividing line. Verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. But like the first plague, when we get to this one, uh, Moses is to meet Pharaoh at the Nile, just like he did in the first one. Go meet him there. He's going out to worship the Nile or bathe or whatever he's doing. Go meet him there and confront him. That's the idea of the terms of the verbs there. For if you, for you, if you do not, these are the words in verse 21, if you do not, notice that, if you do not let my people go, it's a strong, strong confrontation here. Behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptian will be full of swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they dwell. So I am going to strike you. These are the I wills of God. Very important to study as we study the scriptures. The I wills of God, they always talk about promises that he's going to do or judgments. I will do this. The word swarms is an interesting word. Psalm 78, 45 says, a recount of what happened in the psalm says, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. All right, I've been around flies a long time being a cowboy, okay? Flies don't devour people. What is going on here? Well, there are all kinds of flies out there, aren't there? There's stinging flies, biting flies, horse flies, house flies. There's a lot of different flies. And they're actually one of the most dirtiest creatures on the earth. They, they are nasty little boogers. The early Greek translators, in, all the way back to 250, as they were translating these passages from Hebrew to Greek, they called them dog flies because of the seriousness of the bite that they had. So you're going, uh-oh. This isn't like, well, get a swipe, an extra fly swatter. There's a real problem here. These bite back. And so they bite you. They carry disease. There was blindness that nose come from. And every fly, we know this, vomits when they, whatever they ate last on wherever they land. That's why we always kill them in our houses, right? So Pharaoh in his palace, you can't hide from flies, right? You can shut things up. They didn't have glass sliders that seal and all that stuff, right? So flies are crawling into anything. And, and listen, though the 10th plague carries death with it, I think many people die. They're starting to die from this stuff. It, I don't know if you've ever been around somewhere where the flies have gotten, uh, uh, been in old houses where a cow got in there or something and it died and the flies got in. They're, you're never going to inhabit that house again. You're never going to go. That, that thing, you'd have to strip it down to the studs and they'll lay eggs and it just destroys things. This is bad. This is a terrible plague. Um, Verse 22 and 23. But on that day I will set the land of Goshen apart where my people are living. Good, huh? So that no swarms of flies will be there in order that they will know that I am the Lord and they're in the midst of their land. And I will put a division. Hmm, what's that look like? Between my people and your people. And tomorrow this sign will occur. So the first three plagues seem to have affected the Israelites at some level, right? 
But this one, no longer there is going to be the case. The Lord's going to separate his people in this land of Goshen given to Jacob and his family is most likely where all the Israelites are concentrated in. God's now going to put a divine power and put a division between them. Now the word division, um, we get the word redemption from. So it's, it's an interesting word. He is going to redeem them from the rest of Egypt. Now I don't know really what this looked like, but the Bible says tomorrow the sign will occur. So this finger of God is, is gonna be powerful. It's gripping people. And I thought about this for a moment. When they saw that staff come out, and, and this is gonna come tomorrow, that must have been scary. They've already seen some pretty scary stuff. We lived in an earthquake world out in California. And when you have a couple of back-to-back earthquakes and a couple of tremors, everybody's on edge. And, and then you just get a tremor, and man, people are running for doors, and they get really panicky out there. And they talk about our hurricanes. Whew, that's a tough one out there. And if you don't know the Lord and you're in a hurricane, I mean, in a, in a bad earthquake, there's nowhere to go. The roads look like somebody put a whip to them. I've been on them in big earthquakes. And all of a sudden, the road that has no hills in it has hills in it. God just whips. It's amazing. There's nowhere to go. And I thought about these guys. Aaron strikes this ground, and Aaron's coming back out with his rod again. And oh, what's this one going to bring? There must have been terror in their hearts. And, and, but somehow God divides this land. And I don't know how he did this. Maybe he put some curtain up that was that smallest creatures could not penetrate. Can you imagine the, the depth and the breadth of these flies, how thick they are? And then all of a sudden there's a line. Or did he tell his creation, don't cross this line? I think that's what he did. He tells the waves where they go. Bible tells us that, doesn't it? Think about that. Uh, flies, I have a job for you. <laughs> I want you to infest the land of Egypt. Don't go outside of it and don't go in the land of Goshen. He could do that, couldn't he? He made them. He spoke everything into existence. And I think that's what he probably does. He simply tells creation what to do. And meanwhile, this plague is beyond irritating to the Egyptians. It's, it's probably causing death at some level. Verse 24 says there's great swarms. The word, we get the word heavy in the Hebrew. This, this marks, again, the intensity and the density of this plague. Cut them like a knife type of flies. I don't know that you can get your mind around this. The only way I can tell you what I, I've experienced one time, several times, we used to ship cattle in the community corrals, and we could ship about a thousand head out of that and then reload again. And the powder would get about that deep in the middle of the summer or towards the end of summer, just pure powder. And every cow comes in, they probably got thousands of flies on their back. And you're mixing them up, and everybody's pushing, we're shorting and cutting them. And if you don't have something on your mouth, if you don't have your bandana up around your mouth, you will just inhale pounds of dust and flies. And the first time I had ever had ridden in that area, I was new to kind of learning how to handle cattle at that amount of them, that many of them and do that. I didn't have a bandana. And I must have ate a thousand flies that day. I was so sick. I ate so much dust and flies and then you're just trying to handle your horse and push cattle up in the chutes and loading trucks and it's just, it's just, it was absolutely horrible. And you felt like they were down every, they were, they were down your shirt, they were all in your hair and your hat, they were everywhere. And I said, oh Lord, that's probably not even close to what these people dealt with. How miserable this must have been. So verse 25 
You find Pharaoh calling Moses and Aaron back. And you can imagine this, flies buzzing around his head, biting him. Maybe Aaron and uh, Moses are, are there and nothing's touching them. <laughs> and here he's just covered with these things. And he begins to say, will you beckon your God again? Will you beckon your God again? And his, but his heart is still hard here, friends. And, he, and he's not giving in to 100% obedience here. And so Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron. He says, go sacrifice to your God within the land. This is the mark of an unbeliever who wants to play around with God. Well, I'll do some part of it, but I won't do all of it. And he's messing with God. It's a problem today. I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't want to go to hell. So maybe I'll go to church. I will not bend my knee to God. I will not confess my sins. I will not live my life according to what the Bible says, but I'll go to church. See, this is, this is a mark of half-hearted obedience in a defiant life. And that's not how God wants his people to live. Verse 26, but Moses said, it is not right for you to do so. For we will sacrifice to our Lord and God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we, if we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, they will, they will, will they not stone us? I mean, think about what they're doing. This is, this is not right what you're doing, Moses is saying. You're, you're, do, you know, do you understand our Hebrew sacrificial system? We sacrifice bull calves. We sacrifice oxen. And we sacrifice sheep. And you, you look at shepherds as an abomination and the sheep we care for. This isn't going to work. You're, you're talking about putting us to death here. So Moses calls them on this. And so verse 27, he says, look, we got to go three-day journey, doesn't he? We must go three days journey in the wilderness to sacrifice to our God who has commanded us. Three days puts them out of the jurisdiction of, of Pharaoh, puts them away from death where they can honor God the way God asked them to. Verse 28 Pharaoh says, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only. You shall not go very far away. But make supplication for me. So Pharaoh recognizes that Moses is not going to compromise. He's, he's holding true what God commanded him. And so he tries to find some other way to negotiate here. But Pharaoh, um, Moses has said, no, this is what God wants. Pharaoh knows this is my workforce. These are my slaves, and they're going to go away from me. And he's doing everything he can to hold on to them. But then notice at the end, he says, make supplication for me. Pharaoh knew the drill. If I ask him to pray for me, he'll pray for me, and God will let up. He's using God. He's using a, a, a religion that's not his to try to gain favor. But amazingly enough, verse 29, then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from you. He, they, they didn't settle on what was going to happen, but he asked for it. Moses gives it because God, he knows Moses has hardened his heart. And so here Moses does not, does not appear to object about praying for them and the removal of the flies, and, and all that happens. Moses is not naive. He knows what God's doing. He knows that God has a process. He's going to harden his heart. And then finally, these last couple of verses, notice this. And Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. See, that's why I said, I think he has absolute control of his creation. It wasn't one that said, I'm gonna sneak into Goshen. <laughs> he takes care of them 
all. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. Verse 31, this time also he did not let the people go. So God graciously, isn't he gracious to this wicked man? He's so gracious to him. And it's no longer a surprise to Moses. He knows what Pharaoh's gonna do. He believes God that he's gonna harden his heart, but he keeps doing what God asked him to do. And I went in with this. There are people in our lives that reject the truth. You and I keep doing what's right. I, I, I sat there and thought so deeply about this, how much it connects to our lives. Moses knew this man was a liar, but he kept doing what God asked him to do. And I, we don't see where Moses is belligerent anywhere. We don't see where he's condemning anywhere. He just keeps doing what God asked him to do. And he prays for wicked people. Is that good for us? We, we need to think about how, how God handles people in the world. But on the other side, let's not be half-hearted Christians, right? God doesn't accept a lukewarm heart. Revelation says he spits it out. You're either hot or cold. You either run with me or you don't run with me. And there's such a difference when you look at Pharaoh's life and you look at Moses' life. Okay, God, I don't understand why you're gonna keep giving this guy a chance, but you said to do it, so I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go back and pray for him. It's not my job to judge him. It's my job to obey you. That's good stuff, isn't it? Because this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And it is difficult to live in it. It's difficult to see what's happening to this sweet land that we call the United States that was birthed in Christian principles and things that are going down. You and I see it every day. We see what they're doing in the school system. We see what the lawsuits that are happening. Uh, Boy Scouts going down. I mean, all kinds of stuff's going on, right? Hold to the truth. Obey God. That's what he calls us to do. And so Moses is a good example for us. Father, this is fascinating to watch you do these things. And we know, God, you have not changed. You are the, the same God today, yesterday, and forever. And so we know this is you, God. This is the power that you hold. You can tell your creation what line not to cross. You can bring judgment on nations or an individual. You can set your people aside and protect them and give them peace and protection from difficulties, Lord. You have the power to do that. And then sometimes you ask us to go through difficult times, but when we go through them, you ask us to trust you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us be men and women, boys and girls, a people that call Riverbend Church our church home, a group of people desperate to know you more and more each day. Help us desire you, Lord, to desire to know you, to delight in your principles and who you are. Oh, save us from so many troubles, Lord. It'll help us not build little gods in our life and, and things we would fall down and worship that would really cause havoc in our lives, Lord. Give us a hunger. Give us a, a hunger for the things that belong to you, Lord. Lord, thanks for this group. So fun to teach these truths to people who love you. Bless us, Lord. Give us strength to follow you. May we be lights in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.